Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. Everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from Cinema Sins, joined as always by the voice of Cinema Sins, Jeremy Scott. Hello, and music video Sins writer Barrett Share. Howdy. And uh, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the years that since we've been born, the year in movies. So, like, we started with 1975, where Jeremy was born, and we've moved on all the way up to 1981 today. So. Mm. Uh, so we are going to continue that uh, review process in uh, 1981. What do you guys think of that? Hey, a movie. Yeah, we're going to be a movie. That's the fact, Jack. That's the fact, Jack. It's got the beta king. I think, honestly, and I, you guys might disagree with me, I think it's a two-horse race, and I think it's a pretty shitty year. Yes. I agree with the definitely the second part. I think I'm going to get outvoted in this one pretty easily, but it's a shitty year. Okay. I'm glad that I'm not the only one that thinks that. Uh, oh. Yeah. 1981 is a weird year. Like it's, it's got, like you said, it's got like two movies maybe that whatever. Um, and then there's so many, like, there's like a lot of oddball ones in there. Like the evil dead is a, is a good movie, but it, it wouldn't be the best of 1981. Right. Um, and, and Escape from New York, another movie that I enjoy, exactly. but not going to be the best in 1981. Right. Um, uh, the, the, the Academy, um, <laughs> voted Chariots of Fire, <laughs> which is not a good movie at all. Um, the, uh, I think it's the only movie that's ever won. Yeah. It's the only movie that's ever won based on a notable soundtrack. Um, I am pretty sure of this. Uh, it's about running. Yeah. It's about fucking running. Yeah. And, uh, and it's long, and it, right? Or it's just does long. it feel long? Well, I think it fe- feels long, but it might also actually be long too. I mean, yeah, look two hours at the, and four minutes. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, that's, and you know, that's pretty long for, for a movie. A movie running, yeah. For about, yeah. A 1924 Olympics. Uh, yeah. So, uh, not a big fan of chariots of fire. Um, but, uh, obviously, you know, what stands out at you is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark is, uh, I, I'm sure that was, yeah, that was easily the number one movie box office wise. Um, Spielberg back, back from the dead after that 1941 nonsense that he made a couple years before. Um, and it also has what was probably the best Mad Max movie before Fury Road, the Roy- the Road Warrior yeah. came out, uh, in this year. Uh, anything else standing out to you guys? Well, we still haven't mentioned a second horse in my two-horse race, uh, ah. and that is Das Boot. Ah, uh, Das Boot. <laughs> obviously, <clears throat> you know, it's sort of one of the classic 
basically set the stage for submarine movies, good mm-hmm. and bad. Um, and it's hailed as a classic. I think a lot of film students watch it. Um, yep. And uh, I liked it a lot. Um, yeah. Really good. Uh, and I would also mention, uh, maybe this is just sentimental for me because of, you know, I was six years old this year, but The Fox and the Hound from Disney. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, guts me. Um Every time, but I love that movie. Again, maybe that's just, just sentimental. I haven't seen it in probably 10 years, but I remember it being so good. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, speaking of nostalgia, Jeremy, you probably have this same nostalgia for The Great Muppet Caper. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I love that. That was the, the Muppet movie that I saw the most, even though I like the Muppet movie better when I look back on it. But uh, The Great Muppet Caper was the one that I saw the most growing up. And like it's a lot of fun, and you know it's it's right in the the vein of like those types of caper heist mystery type of things. But it's I mean it's eighties. Like it's it's it looks eighties. It feels eighties. Like, oh yeah. It, uh, it it can't get any more eighties unless it was like wearing <laughs> leg warmers and had AIDS or something like that. You know. It's like, <laughs> But okay, there's two things that I really love this year. One of my favorite movies is Stripes, mm, uh, mm. which I explain a little bit later about like how much ground it covers. But it's brilliant. It's I, I think it's probably Bill Murray at his best. And the other thing that you, you see film students and you know writers watch a lot and artists is a, a movie called My Dinner with Andre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's literally two guys sitting at a dinner table talking for almost two hours. And it's a great conversation. It covers a lot of crazy stuff. And it's it's really worth checking out. I just realized how big a year this was for cult movies. And it's probably no coincidence that we started out calling it a shitty year. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've already named a bunch. But, you know, Evil Dead, American Werewolf in London, um, Time Bandits, um, mm-hmm. Cannibal Run. Um, there's just a lot of movies that – you know, have that kind of cult following even today, I think, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the, that was the one thing that that leapt out at me. You know, you have Porky's, which is not a good movie at all, by the way. I don't <laughs> I don't suggest anybody to go watch Porky's, but it was basically what the 80s became as far as, you know, mid, you know, summer sex comedies and everything. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you mentioned Scanners, but I think Scanners is basically just known for the one scene and that's yeah. the head blowing up and the rest of it sucks. Um, Mel Brooks came out with History of the World, which was pretty funny. It's uh, sometimes people consider that one of his best. Um, uh, and then, yeah, and, and to go along with that vein, Heavy Metal, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, sort of uh, introduced us. I think I think it might be my first and it might be a lot of people's first uh, interactions with cartoon nudity. Um, <laughs> Are you kidding? That's the only reason we watched it. That is the only reason we watched it. But yeah, but since then, there hasn't very be- there hasn't been many, many popular movies that have come out that have had, you know, uh, that type of material. And, you know, you can't you can't really make cartoons without expecting unsuspecting families to forget the rating and just go on in and watch it anyway. Um, uh, it's kind of like that, the thing with Ted that happened, people thought, Oh, it's a cute teddy bear. We'll just bring, bring the family in to watch that stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, at two horror sequels, uh, Friday the 13th two and Halloween two came out, um, in this year. Halloween two is just basically a continuation of the first movie. It's okay. Um, definitely not the first one. Uh, Friday the 13th two is just really the introduction of Jason to the series mm-hmm. after it was psycho mom. And the first one, um, Spoiler. another, 
Yeah. Um, the, the, a movie that a lot of people talk about critically, uh, is reds. I've seen reds. Uh, it's a super long movie. It's just, and it's about like, uh, the like Russian communist, uh, uh, uprising or whatever. And, and it's good, but man, good God, that's a movie that's just full of itself. It feels like, um, uh, what else do you guys see on this? Postman always rings twice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholson. Um, yeah. You know, it's not. I think isn't that isn't that known for scandalous nudity or sex or something? I have never seen it. Okay, I'm pretty sure that's the only reason I watched it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure they have like some scandalous kitchen sex or something. Um, yeah. You know, looking at it now, it doesn't have you know, very high rating from critics, but, uh, I know it's, I know it's notable and I just can't remember why I'm thinking it's the sex. Yeah. Um, well, and speaking of which, uh, that would include body heat, yep, yep, yep. um, which is a great movie actually. Um, I, I recently saw it, but, um, but, uh, I think, I think that's a remake of double indemnity indemnity. I can't remember if it is or not. Um, it's a, I think it's a remake of something that came out in uh, the fifties or something like that. I'm trying to remember, but, uh, but I, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, as I've, I've seen William Hurt recently in altered States and body heat and all this other type of stuff. Uh, and like, <laughs> I'm like, I wish I could have been William Hurt in the eighties. <laughs> uh, this guy had a really interesting career yeah. during that decade. And, uh, he was, he did so much good work back then and everything. And, uh, I just, I really like, I mean, I really like him back then. So he's, he's, that's a good movie. Um, I think we're forgetting on golden pond maybe, or did we mention that already? Well, we haven't mentioned it. I just haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either, but I know some actors won awards for it. So I think it's basically, if we don't mention movies like that, when we're talking about the year, uh, someone is going to come on the comments and go, what about this? What about that? Yeah. Um, and it's just a, never been a movie that's appealed to me. Oh, but, Cause you're not uh, 75. Right. Um, so, I mean, I, I just haven't seen it. Have you seen it, Barrett? No, I never saw that one movie that we probably all seen and kind of forgot about until they did a remake of it recently is Arthur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of introduced a, a pretty, you know, influential character, I guess, into, into culture, uh, so much so that it was almost parodied by Russell Brand, uh, what was it, 2014 or something like that? It was, I think it was like 2010, maybe 2011. Yeah. Um, Dudley Moore was, yeah. I mean, he, he made his career almost on, on this, uh, this, I mean, Arthur, and there was at least a second one. I think there were a couple of sequels or like closely uh, modeled spinoffs, kind of like Black. Well, yeah, Keith it was like Tommy on the rocks. Stuff like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, another one that, that, you know, stands out a little bit is Blowout. The, I, I had a De Palma obsession for a while where I watched just about everything he's ever come out with. And uh, Blowout is sort of a, um, a sort of a pseudo remake of Blow Up, a movie that came out in the 60s um, uh, where uh, the, you know, he he captures something on video and he does and he doesn't know quite what it is, but he has to. He has to like, you know, go through and, and treat the film and all that. Basically, it's a car wreck and he's trying to figure out what's what what happened during it and everything, uh, you know, blow up was sort of like that. It was a photographer going around taking pictures of this one scene before a murder happens. And um, but uh, blowouts a really interesting movie. John Travolta. 
um, is good in it. Um, just a, it's just a, it's just an interesting movie. Uh, are we ready to vote on this? I don't know if there's any other ones. I mean, sure. There's a few, uh, that we could name. A thief is another one. The Michael Mann movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a good, really good actually. Um, it's just, it's when you look at 1981 as a whole, there's just nothing that just super stands out. Uh, there's, you know, there's good movies like you wouldn't mind watching them, but there's not anything like, you know, ex- you know, except for like Raiders and Das Boat <laughs> and um, and Mad Max, the Road Warrior. You know, there's not much that you would that the number one search on 1981 is Mommy Dearest, which is not. <laughs> it's uh-huh. not oh, my God, that movie, is that the Joan Crawford story. Yeah, Joan Crawford played by Faye Dunaway, and uh, there is a lot of craziness in that movie. Um, <laughs> like, uh, I think a lot of people, uh, when they bring up Mommy Dearest, it's the big coat, the wire coat hanger scene oh, where she, yeah. she's like, "You're like, I give you everything. You don't, ha- you don't hang your dresses with wire coat hangers. Yeah. You know, all this other type of stuff." Um, but uh, yeah, Mommy Dearest is one of those movies. I think it's a uh, now that it's popular now because it's a product of our times basically <laughs> like it's like we we made it popular 2000 you know the 2000s made that poop movie popular anyway let's uh you want to go ahead and vote on this all right okay uh easy for me raiders of the lost ark is gonna win this um spielberg at his best this is uh a movie i've probably seen more than 50 times it's just uh an adventure that just it's a it's creative um and it, it's just got so many scenes in it that uh, are iconic, you know, basically. So um, I don't know how I don't even know how else we can go anywhere else. But I'll be interested to see what you guys yeah, think. Barrett's going to get voted down. He said. So let's hear uh, it. I'm well. Maybe I, my favorite film from this this year, and I think much more influential than we give it credit for, is Stripes. Uh, it was Ivan Reitman. It was. <laughs> Uh, Bill Murray, it was Harold Ramis, it was John Candy. I mean, really all of the, the huge actors at the t- huge comic actors at the time. It has, it's not just a straightforward screwball comedy, uh, like was, you know, with meatballs and some of the other things that, um, that Murray had done before. There's actually kind of a lot of, uh, different, you know, it's a buddy comedy. It's, um, you know, an action adventure later on. It's um, it has a surprising amount of drama kind of in the middle of it, especially during the boot camp scenes. And it actually has um, my favorite depiction of a mud wrestling scene, which was <laughs> incredibly common during 80s movies. You'd think that every yep. bar had mud wrestling in it. Uh, <laughs> it did. But it was if we had just talked about uh, Bill Murray doing Hunter S. Thompson in Where the Buffalo Roam the, the year before. And he could kind of see because. A Hunter S. Thompson impersonation is kind of hard to shake, apparently. Depp did it for a number of years afterwards. And you could kind of see, like, it's still hanging on a few times uh, with with Bill Murray, which is kind of funny to me. But anyway, that's my pick. It's it's wrong. I know it's wrong, but I love it. (laughs) Hey, you're never wrong for loving a movie. Jeremy? Oh, it's Raiders all the way. You lose. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Nothing ever had a chance uh, against Raiders. um, And uh, I'm surprised that you threw stripes out there, but I appreciate you having passion behind it. Um, It's not as good a movie as Raiders. Um, But uh, yeah, there's just, there's just no other question. I I could go on and on. Chris already said it pretty eloquently. It's just, it's, it's, it's definitive, right? I mean, not only for every, indie movie that came since, but just for that sort of swashbuckling, you know, that's that whole genre there that 
that it just created. Um, and Harrison Ford at his best. Uh, it's just uh, it's one of my favorite movies, and it's definitely my favorite from 81. Hold on, hold on for a second. We're going to call Raiders of the Lost Ark the winner, but did we mention one thing about Clash of the Titans? Did we mention one <laughs> no, thing about no. it? No, shame on us. What the hell's wrong Shame on us. All right. Well, it wasn't going to win anyway. Yeah. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I believe, Yay, is the winner. Yeah, applause. Yeah. yeah. You know what? I don't have a problem with stripes. Although I did read something recently, and I was like, you know what? They may have something on on this. Stripes seems like more uh, like funnier during the first half of the movie than it does the second half. Of oh the yeah. Movie. And, yeah, and so a lot of the things that we remember about Stripes, you know, son of beach shit and all that, you know, that's the the thing that I remember about Stripes the most. You know what it teaches. is? Yeah, it's yep. like a full metal jacket effect. Everything mm. that you remember of that movie is in boot camp, right? Because it's so yeah. rich, you know, right. and, uh, and it's the same thing here. I mean, there's it, it, that's where like all the pathos and all the uh, camaraderie and all that stuff uh, comes from. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, but cool. name um, one iconic scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I dare you. <laughs> <laughs> Two hours later. <laughs> All, right. All right. So uh, today we're going to be talking about people who are just poor bastards and lucky bastards in movies. Poor Pinkus. Poor little Pinkus. Lucky son of a bitch. You know what people say? What? When you guys leave a room? What do they say? Poor bastard. And uh, I don't, I, I'm not going to shy away from saying that we've already talked about this, but it got lost yeah. a long time ago. Wah, 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 indeed. But uh, we gave it a few weeks and now we're going to tackle it again. Uh, we're going to talk about people that we really feel sorry for and people who we think, Oh, you should have died. Um, so, uh, Jeremy, do you want to take it away on this? Yeah, yeah. And I will uh, – I'm going to start the same place I did last time with uh, Ray Winstone, Mr. French in The Departed. Um, mm -hmm. He's uh, Frank uh, Costello's right-hand man, uh, career criminal. He's a bad dude. Um, but um, <clears throat> near the end when uh, they raid uh, the drug shipment that Costello and his men are loading up – all hell breaks loose and the cops start shooting and Leo sneaks away and Matt Damon somehow ends up finding Jack Nicholson. But before he does, Nicholson and Mr. French are in the car and he's driving backwards and he gets shot and he wrecks. And Nicholson climbs out and runs away and French takes the car and drives like, I don't know, a hundred more feet and wrecks again. <laughs> the thing he wrecks into catches fire and he picks up a gun and goes, fuck it, and shoots himself in the chin. And I just, yeah. every time I watch the movie, I think, that poor bastard, man, his life went from status quo to my best option is to die in like 30 seconds. And I just always feel bad. <laughs> it's funny that you brought that up because I, I actually never thought of it that way until you described it like that. You know, like I just, you know, in the course of that movie, I've seen it a few times. I, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, he's dead. Thank God. You know, he's a bad guy. Uh, but, but you know, he hearing you describe it that way, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, he kind of, that is kind of a poor bastard moment. It's shockingly sudden. That was it. Oh, yeah. yeah. He just, just pulled it out. Fuck it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Barrett. I'm going to continue our tradition of deviating from movies and talk about Breaking Bad. Because okay. I think, okay. I think the the OG of Poor Bastards, for many, many reasons, has to be Jesse Pinkman. Mm -hmm. oh. Yep. Oh, for, good call. 
every reason. It's exhausting watching him in this show. And it's it's intriguing, but it's exhausting because every time he kind of shows some sort of growth or some sort of, you know, character development or something like that, he just gets kicked down, whether it's by Walter or whether it's by the drugs or whether it's by, you know, any other um, characters in there. The or, death or, of his girlfriend, i.e. Walter. Exactly. <laughs> and that that's the poor bastard moment, by the way, that, that I think about is in Ozymandias, the penultimate episode. I think it's the penultimate, penultimate uh, episode. Say that five Just times. like saying penultimate. I do. <laughs> it gives me a penultimate boner. And, <laughs> yeah, but, trying to say Oxymandias and penultimate somehow <laughs> side by side. But yeah, you know, earlier in the series, as they're doing heroin, Jesse and his girlfriend are asleep, passed out from the heroin, and his girlfriend uh, chokes on her own vomit and and dies. And Walter's in the room, and he didn't do anything about it. He could have easily saved her and everything. Uh, Jane is her name. And then in the next to final episode, I'll call it that, um, after, you know, all this crazy shit happens, Jesse's going off to be imprisoned again. And Walter, just to stick the knife in further and twist it, says, I watched Jane die. And it's like, <laughs> God damn it, man. I mean, that episode is is hard to watch on many, many levels, but that one it's just like kind of an extra fuck you thrown in Oh, there. man, yeah. You, and even even when Jesse's driving away at the end and you you feel good, right? He's free and he's like laughing. Um, but he's fucked, right? I mean, if he doesn't get arrested or killed, he's crazy. He's so messed up from all this stuff. He's going to have issues for the rest of his life. Like, he's not really free. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, the I, I love that final scene just because there is so much conflict in him as he's driving away. Like he's like he's like I'm free and I'm glad, but I got saved by that guy. Why why did I have to get saved by that guy? Yeah. Um. And uh. And that's why that for me is one of those moments where you almost you're you feel exactly like he does in that scene and everything. Yeah. It's why it's so good. Yeah. Um. You were talking about like how he you know you think about what he's he is in the first season he's perfectly happy where he is <laughs> yeah, he, he is, is. He, he loves being this small time drug dealer and and just you know getting getting an occasional girl to go you know to sleep with him and 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 all that he has a simple life he doesn't have very much to to really deal with and it's only when walter comes in and makes it way more complex that you know that he you know, his life actually ironically becomes worse with them with more money and and more, uh, you know, responsibilities yeah. and everything. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I love that choice. And I think we can always cheat with Breaking Bad because it's essentially a movie in yeah. itself. Um, I am going to go with a horrible movie. You guys went with uh, two great, uh, you know, examples there of fine art. Uh, I'm going to go with the Green Lantern. Oh, oh. <laughs> and <laughs> the, when when this topic was first brought up, I immediately thought of Hector Hammond, the guy that Peter Sarsgaard plays in the Green Lantern, <laughs> um, because I've never seen in all the movies that we've sinned and all the movies that I've watched. I don't know if I've seen more of a poor bastard than Hector Hammond because he. 
in the in the beginning of the movie he's he's like he's a loner and he he may have a little bit of a creep out moment with Blake Lively at the beginning of that movie but it's not like anything like horrible or anything uh it might have been a half-assed attempt by the filmmakers to make him somewhat of a dickhead in the movie but it just didn't work um and he is he's he's he gets this job from his dad his dad tells him hey i need you to do an autopsy on this you know whatever million old mummy or whatever it is and and like of course he gets infected with that thing and he become he starts becoming a monster and he becomes a a, a secondary villain in the green lantern and he did nothing to deserve it Where <laughs> most movies uh you know most of these comic book movies uh, they have somebody who has has done something and, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm tired of this, but, you know, the, the doctor who is who is just I have to put this I have to do this on myself or else I'll never succeed uh, or or it's somebody who's already bad, like the Joker or somebody like that. Um, this guy did nothing and he becomes a secondary villain and and we have to kill this guy because he's a, he's a dick now. And, uh, and like, and then when he finally does die, it's like, oh, well, you know, it, the moment is, is made out to be like, oh, well, well, thank God that guy's dead. But then you think back at his character arc. And it's like the guy didn't do anything to deserve this whatsoever. He had no choice in the matter. And, uh, and I, I always felt bad for that guy. Uh, and even though I've only seen that movie a couple of times, I just, and it's not good. That's just one of those moments. Where I'm just like, well, that poor bastard. That's a, that's a, I think I literally said those words when I <laughs> saw that guy. Um, so, so that's mine. I know that you guys have awesome stuff. That was a bad movie, but that's what I always think about. Do we want to move into a round of lucky bastards? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so I would nominate this guy. I'm not sure he would win, but I would nominate this guy for Luckiest Bastard on film. Um, And it's Ethan Hawke's character in Training Day. Mm -hmm. And it's near the end, and he's already learned that Denzel's kind of a horrible person. And um, they go to this uh, Mexican gangster house, and, and Denzel basically strands him and it takes Ethan Hawke a while to figure out that he's been stranded. But once he does, it escalates quickly and these guys are going to kill him. And they take him into the bathroom and they're going to shoot him with a shotgun. And all of a sudden, a little pink wallet falls out of his pocket. <laughs> what is that wallet? Well, that is the wallet of the niece of the gangster. Yeah. Ethan Hawke happened to save from rape by homeless person in Los fucking Angeles. Earlier in the day, <laughs> had that not occurred, Ethan Hawke dies in the toilet. Roll credits, movie's over. Um, <laughs> you get nothing else, and um, it's just that one of the biggest coincidences I think I've ever ever seen, and it always bothers me. It always stands out. And as someone pointed out to me, it was a friend of mine who just watched The Revenant, and we were chatting about it last night. It's the same thing happens in that movie because the, oh, yeah. the, the natives come and save him because, or help him because, or don't kill him, whatever it is, because right. he had saved the girl earlier in the movie. That's exactly yeah. what happened. Yep, and you know that was what. 50 miles away. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was so, insane. They just show up out of yeah. nowhere. That's for sure. But that, uh, that tells America to anytime you witness a potential rape, you stop it and good well, things that, will happen well, to you. Hopefully America knew that already. <laughs> no, but did they know they wouldn't get shot later in that same day? Because no. <laughs> <laughs> they probably didn't. This is a PSA right here. It's like great expectations. Yeah. It's just like that where, you know, they <laughs> yeah, say the – 
<laughs> they help, if you help you know, Robert De Niro, I'm thinking yeah. of the 1998 version. I was, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, you uh, you you help out artist. help out the homeless person who turns out to be a billionaire, and uh, and then they'll say they'll help you at the end, even though he killed a bunch of people. In in fact, yes. <laughs> All right, Barrett, give us a lucky bastard. Oh, I love that movie. Okay, so another movie I I love and that I can't understand how this happens is in High Fidelity. Uh, John Cusack is basically kind of what all white 20-something uh, kind of proto-hipsters used to want to be in the early 2000s. Own your own record shop and uh, be a, a, a semi-famous DJ in Chicago and that kind of thing. But he's not a catch. Like, he's he's a catch to, like, his friends that are also music geeks like him. But he's a school dropout who has had a train of failed relationships, which are basically the, the plot of the movie. And he's not really, like, doing great. Like, his, his business isn't doing great. And so the, the movie starts out with him lamenting his lost relationship recently with, with his girlfriend and him trying to eventually win her back. And so as soon as, like, he has some sort of moment, and he actually, like, kind of exposits this in in one of his monologues, but he, uh, as soon as he has some sort of potential reconciliation with his ex-girlfriend, he goes out and he sleeps with Lisa Bonet in prime Bonet years. Oh, my God. One of those gorgeous women in the world. She's unbelievable. And he goes out and he just nails it. He just says, hey, you know what? I'm going to show up at this show that she's playing. I'm going to seduce this woman with the power of my dick. Uh, and he becomes like just this some sort of Lothario uh, in this. AP. I have no idea how that happens. Well, and even one of his exes is Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah. Yes. Like it, yeah. It's like he's only ever been with the hottest women alive. And he's like the modest <laughs> locker. And he bitches about it the entire time. Yeah. yeah. This and is this is, is sort of the, the fucking bastard is what I'm saying. This is sort of the James Bond thing that like I'll never understand. And I would love it for once in a Bond movie. Where the and they tried this, but they they always succumb. Uh, these I'd like once the the girl just to be like, nah, don't, I don't like this. I don't like this James Bond guy at all. I don't want and to never, immediately have sex with you, <laughs> right? And and in every Bond movie, it's like it doesn't matter. All he has to do is he. I mean, the worst one is in uh, Skyfall, where he just he goes and like just basically barges into this girl's shower while she's <laughs> she's <laughs> and, and 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 just decides I'll just stand next to her in her shower and she'll be like, "Yep, totally about this." That works for you, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have not gone to jail because of it. Um, but yeah, like like every Bond movie is like that. It's just like all I have to do is just. Be persistent, and eventually they'll they'll just you know they'll do it. Uh, I I have one another bad movie. I don't know why I thought of bad movies when I when this topic came up, but um, Attack of the Clones. Yeah. Um, Obi Wan Kenobi is one lucky ass bastard <laughs> in a sequence that stretches over for like thirty minutes of the movie. Uh, he knows that uh, Jango Fett is 
uh, behind whatever's going on and he follows him in space and there's the big huge let's re- let's recreate the uh, meteor scene from empire strikes back <laughs> and all sort of type of stuff and and uh, and even you know there's a point where jango shoots and he sees a big explosion and he's like well that must have taken care of him Does and it? just you know and goes on to the the planet that they're going to um now Django goes to the planet and he actually goes into this like secret little uh ship docking bay thing or whatever before Obi-Wan even enters the atmosphere of the planet. Um and so Obi-Wan who's hiding behind a rock uh decides all right I'm going to go to the planet now everything's safe I'm going to go down there. He goes down there and he sees a city and basically all he sees is oh there's a lot more federation ships here than usual. And uh and so like he he goes in and he lands next to this like mountain or something like that. And he's like, just sort of surveys the land and, and you're like, what is he going to do next? Well, what the movie quote unquote expertly does is it switches over to Anakin and Anakin's search for his mom and all this other stuff. And it goes on for a good four or five minutes and whatever. So when you get back to Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan is suddenly, I think I go need to go into this like side entrance of the mountain. I don't know that there's an opening here, but uh, I think there might be one. And he goes into this mountain. And as soon as he does, there's Christopher Lee as Dooku and all the bad guys are sitting there talking about all the, the entire plot of the movie. They're like, like, oh yeah, well, um. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, the clones are being made as uh, as uh, as planned, and uh, and oh by the way, uh, I won't. You know, they have the 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 racist uh, Asian aliens that are in there, and they're like, I will not rest until Amadala's head is on my desk, <laughs> and all this other type of stuff, and like. So, so he just stumbles <laughs> on that. He stumbles on this conversation that they could have been having hours ago. It has nothing to do with Django, by the way. Django just gets out of the picture at that point. He, he, uh, he, you know, he, he gets to overhear this meeting that they have and all this other stuff. But like, but like Django had nothing to do with it. He just kind of what made, you know, I guess the argument is, oh, maybe he felt some sort of presence in the force and he, he, you know, went that way. But surely you felt it before they started talking about all their plans and, <laughs> and everything. So it, it's something that bothers me. Like there, there's no explanation for it whatsoever. <laughs> it, 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 all they had to do was have Obi-Wan go. I felt, a, I feel a presence, you know, to himself or to R4 or whatever he's with, you know, he could, he could easily do that, but no, he's just, Oh, Next time we see him, oh, oh, this mountain must have an em- entrance that I can go in. That's 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 good. And they're talking about the big plan right now. Oh, what, what serendipity! <laughs> Obi Wan is a lucky bastard. That entire movie. Oh Jeez. sure, yeah. The, the I was so bored immediately as soon as that movie started until you know they go through and they're protecting Padme and all that stuff, and then it takes forever for the first action sequence to actually start in that movie. And mm-hmm. it's where he just flies out of the fucking window to grab onto the droid and go for, you know, like a joyride <laughs> yeah. to go back yeah. to the, uh, the he just runner. knows, he knows that he's going to be able to jump out that window and catch that five by five droid that's flying out and everything. <laughs> he even and gets like, shot in one of his hands and he's like, Oh, better hang on with the Yeah. Well, and, and like, you know, that was a, that was another one that, I mean, you could easily go through this whole movie and go through all the lucky bastard moments and everything where, uh, you know, he's, there's that, 
there's that moment where they're flying through all that like fifth element traffic that's going on in the in the uh, skyline yeah. and everything. There's like nothing but vehicles everywhere. It's dark and everything. And they just kind of takes a look to his left and he's like, oh, there's the there's the assassin <laughs> and and flies that way and get, catches up with them and everything. Who was uh, a shapeshifter, and, and, by the way, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the continuing shapeshifter tradition of of going back to their original form for no fucking reason. Um, you know, <laughs> I, n- I never understand that. If you're running away from somebody, why don't you just, you know, it's for the audience. Oh, it's the shapeshifter. We don't need to know that. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> uh, I hate that movie. Yeah, absolutely terrible. All right, more poor bastards. Yep. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm going to continue this podcast tradition of talking about the movie State in Maine. Yes. Which is a David Mamet comedy about a film production in a tiny town. And uh, <clears throat> there's a production assistant. I'm not exactly sure what his title is on the film. Um, and his wife is about to go into labor. And throughout the movie, he continually – you know, will come in to William H. Macy, the director's, you know, vicinity and say, um, I need to leave. My wife is having a baby, um, <laughs> having contractions or what. He's constantly like more and more exacerbated. But the reactions William H. Macy gives him just get progressively meaner and meaner. Like, the first time he's like, is that on the call sheet? Uh, <laughs> and at one point he says, thanks for the update. And the poor guy just <laughs> sighs and walks away every time, completely misses his <laughs> child's birth. Um, and I always feel so bad for that guy. I mean, he's the one that takes the most shit in that movie. Um, well, and even and even by the end of the movie, he's got the shirt and the cigars on set. You know, yeah. like it's a it's a girl or whatever it is, and he's like handing them out. Like he obviously missed everything, and he's yeah. just he's celebrating on set. Yeah. <laughs> poor, poor, poor <laughs> bastard. I, really, I always feel bad for that guy. And if you haven't seen State in Maine yet, even though we've mentioned it like six times, you know, this is their seventh. You know. Let's do seventh yeah. warning. Go watch that movie. Oh yeah, it's so good. <laughs> it worked for sneakers. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah people watch that shit all the time. Day. I got a guy people yesterday. Are all over sneakers now. I- yep, yep. And that's thanks to us. You're welcome, yep. Robert Redford. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned this one actually uh, a few podcasts ago about uh, one of my favorite movies. It was the first movie that we did about when we were uh, when we were born. It was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. Oh. And it's got a perfect poor bastard moment that kills me every time I watch it. It's uh, the one of the he's obviously locked up in a uh, psychiatric institution, um, and uh, Randall McMurphy, Jack Nicholson's character, you know, kind of organizes the uh, the the asylum mates, and one of them is a young kid named Billy who has this unspecified anxiety disorder, um, but is really debilitating and he stutters and that kind of thing. He's socially inept. And so Mac basically kind of brings him out of his shell. And so one one of the nights they actually sneak some of the girls in, Randall's uh, girlfriends, who he's good with other people sleeping with because it was the 70s and everybody fucks everybody. <laughs> And so he brings him in and Billy uh, gets a moment with it. Like he says, Hey, you know, take care of him, you know, that kind of thing. And they go into one of the rooms and, and Billy does his thing. And in the tradition of something like Porky's of, I don't have any friends like this, by the way, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but there was a lot, there are a lot of movies where a dude will go in, have sex with a woman and come out and immediately is met by all of his male friends who are like, yeah, (laughs) 
Like, I don't think that's ever happened to me. (laughs) Just as an aside, uh, in the movie Porky's, there's a part where, like, all the guys think they're going to have sex with a stripper. And they all get naked in front of each other. (laughs) Like waiting for this stripper and everything it's a big prank anyway but like they're all just sitting there like five or six naked dudes just having a conversation i'm like no no this would not happen well that's like in neighbors where they make plaster molds of their dicks in neighbors where they're all standing around in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly even in a fraternity i don't think that would happen no, it wouldn't fly. Oh my god! Anyway, so he he comes out after after doing that, and because of the magic powers of ejaculation, like he he has lost his stutter, and like he's a smooth motherfucker now, and like he comes out and he's like, hey, you know, everything's cool, <laughs> and eventually the staff gets back into and and restores order and everything, and the primary antagonist is uh, is Nurse Ratchet, and oh man, there's this real rough scene where. Uh, you know, she basically chides him and says, Billy, you know, what, what's, what's going on here? I expected more from you. And he looks at her and he says like, you know, I'm not going to take your shit anymore. And Mm -hmm. he doesn't. And then she, she just looks at him and says, well, what would your mother say? And she knows that that's his Achilles heel. And that's like one of the primary sources of his anxiety. Yeah. And it immediately goes back to him reverting to this, like, and he, he nails it. Uh, he like this stooped, um, stuttering thing is just why would you why would you tell her you know and every time man that is a poor bastard moment for sure oh my god yeah that's I mean, that is that's one of those I, it, would you say that's the moment where that really personifies her as the, as evil in that like is it is yeah. it before then yeah, before then we know she's bad but then it's that that really sort of gets to the truth of the matter. Like they don't want these people to get better. Exactly. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a few scenes like in the group therapy sessions where she just shames the shit out of them. Uh, mm-hmm. This, this takes it like to a whole different level. And that's where like, if there was any thought of like, you know, this vagabond roused about uh, M- M- McMurphy uh, being a negative influence and that they were right, like that just takes it completely out of the picture. And you just root for these people to to figure out a way to overthrow their uh, their overlords. But uh, yeah, no, she was. Um, I am going to go a little bit uh, different from what I did last time uh, on our when we last tried to do this. Uh, just for a variety of reasons I'll get into later. But um, but uh, this one is sort of both a poor bastard and a lucky bastard at the same time. <laughs> Ooh. Because it does involve two people. Um, in the natural, um, I don't know if you remember, but, uh, you know, when Roy Hobbs gets uh, on the team, he plays right field and Bump Bailey plays right field. Michael Madsen plays right field. Um, I n- never really understood why Roy couldn't just play another position in the outfield, but they, they both play right field. Um, so, uh, the, you know, Bump is the guy who's dating Memo and he's he's messing up and and he's not very good anymore. He used to be a big star. Uh, sort of sort of foreshadowing what is going to happen to Roy later on in the movie and everything. Uh, but then there's a, you know, Roy gets his chance. He gets the pinch hit, uh, pinch hit that wins the game. He tears the cover off the ball and all this other type of stuff. Um, and there's a, a scene where uh, Bump is in the office with Pop Fisher, Wilford Brimley character. Uh, he's like, we feel that Hobbs can fill your position very neatly. And he's like, you're going to have to shape up or else it's the bench. 
So like the next day, Bump Bailey's going like four for four. He's like catching everything in the outfield and all this other type of stuff. Roy's still on the bench. And, and so the movie basically says, we need to get Roy Hobbs in this movie. So they have Bump run after a fly ball and crash through the outfield wall and die. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so sudden too. Like he crashes through the wall and you see this slow motion, like, Hey, come somebody come save this guy, blah, blah, blah. And like the very next thing is a newspaper saying, Bump Bailey dead. Uh, They're going to spread his ashes over the field the next day. And all sorts of stuff. And like, so it, it in turn becomes a lucky bastard for Roy Hobbs because now he gets to play. And like, if you think about it, it none of this had to happen. They could have just put Roy in like left field. It would have been fine. And, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, yeah, bump, bump probably wouldn't have been better if he didn't have Roy pushing him. But at the same time, what a, that, it's just one of those, just like, what did they have to do that? Did they have to kill the guy to do this? So anyway, that's sort of what functions as both a poor bastard and a lucky bastard. All right. So I'm also going to do something I didn't do last time. Um, I don't know why we keep telling the audience that because they never heard the first one, but, um, So, again, another movie I've talked about a lot um, here is Gone Baby Gone, mm. which mm-hmm. is Ben yep. Affleck's brilliant directorial debut. Um, really, really deep drama. Uh, Casey Affleck is the star. And uh, there's this point in the movie where he and another cop are talking outside a hospital, I think, after an, a big incident. I, don't, I really don't want to spoil too much. But uh, the other cop he's been working with this whole movie is drinking and he gets a little too drunk and says something stupid. And then (laughs) a little bit later, Casey Affleck remembers it and realizes it doesn't jive with what the guy said like weeks ago. And, uh, that is not good detective work. Casey Affleck, that is just pure (laughs) luck. When the bad guy gives you the information you need to figure out what's going on. And, He's, you know, this private detective. He actually does some smart things in this movie and is made to be, you know, fairly street smart and good at his job. But the whole movie hinges on this and it's just handed to him on a platter. And it, it's always a little unsettling to me that it's just, you know, it's that easy for everything to fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, no it's one of those things where you you feel like they've got their basic story in place and everything and they've got all the plot details and everything and they're just like but how can we get our protagonist to know this and it's always like it feels like it's always something like that that happens instead of like maybe him finding somebody who talks or finding a piece of evidence of some sort that, you know, that, that sort of then leads him to remember a conversation he had instead of, you know, uh, drunkenly saying, Oh, by the way, here's all the things that you're going to find out later. You know, (laughs) I got a lucky bastard story. That's essentially the whole movie. And that's the Wolf of wall street. Ah, I watched this again fairly recently and it's incredible. The amount of shit that, uh, Jordan <laughs> goes through, you know, he survives almost right off the bat. He survives a helicopter crash. Yeah. And he survives several overdoses of very powerful, potent medications. And, you know, not to mention all the other various, you know, shenanigans he gets into that, you know, it doesn't really catch up to him. But then when it does catch up to him, 
he's shown kind of like getting back to being rich again. And it's like, <laughs> I know that, that that's kind of like the whole point is that he's got a charmed life and we're supposed to kind of love, hate him and that kind of thing. But it's ridiculous how lucky he is and just keeps fucking up things, you know, and the, the whole interaction with – uh, with the FBI and with his wife. And the drive with- home in the Lamborghini alone should have killed him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lamborghini, exactly. It's amazing. This guy has like 20 lives. And, uh, you know, God bless him. It's fun to watch, but it's he is a lucky fucking guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's an autobiography. And it's not it, – this isn't – I mean – Okay, so we have two things at work here. Either this stuff really happened and he really is just the lucky bastard that he portrays himself to be, or he exaggerated the details. Oh, I'm sure it's the second. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, If you just take the movie as a, you know, as a sort of a, a fantasy or whatever, it's like, God, this guy just, you know, he just keeps getting all the luck, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. So, Jeremy, I, I, I'll let you start this one up again. Uh, one more poor bastard. All right. It's tough to choose. I've got a list. I like them all, but um, I'm going back to the well with the Lost World Jurassic Park and Richard Schiff's mm. character. Oh, yeah. Um, in the trailer T-Rex attack on the cliff scene, uh, which is Spielberg, Spielberg at his very best, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. <clears throat> the tension is built so well. Um, and, you know, Richard Schiff comes to their rescue and he has to do like a dozen different things. All of them go wrong and he has to improvise between tying the rope and it coming off or the car trying to pull the trailer back, but it's spinning in the, in the mud. And he's just exhausted by the end of it. He's clearly giving his all to save his fellow man. And um, they actually survive, mind you, because of all of this that he does. And his thank you from fate is that the T-Rex has come back. They've inexplicably been gone for 10 yes, minutes. Inexplicably. They come back quietly, mind you. He didn't hear them coming. And they tear him apart in half and eat you half. <laughs> That's your reward, well, buddy. And, and it's, and it's, we, I think we said this in the Sims video. It's like, it's like mom and dad got their kid back and they're going through the woods and they're like high-fiving and they're like, wait a minute, someone could survive this? Let's go back and eat this guy, you know? And then they just disappear again so that yeah. the other guys can come and save them. Yeah, and they're and they're fully aware of the situation that a trailer is going to fall off a cliff at that yes. point if, you know, they eat this guy right here. They won't bother like making sure the trailer falls off on its right. own. They'll just, you know... They'll just let's eat this guy, and then yeah, then we'll high five and work work well done. <laughs> all right, Barry. yeah. Uh, one of the big poor bastard moments that I see is in Tom in uh, Castaway with Tom Hanks. Mm. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. He's a poor bastard on a lot of different levels. Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you could say that for sure. And on a desert island, and has a bad tooth and all that stuff. But he finds his way back and, um, you know, gets gets back to – gets rescued by by a ship and everything. And the, the funny thing about it when – it's actually, you know, when it's on the upswing where he's rescued and he's going back and everything. But then there's kind of like a series of poor bastard moments. And it starts when, like, he's on the plane and they're like, would you like some ice with your Dr. Pepper? And he's, <laughs> and he's like, fuck you almost. <laughs> <laughs> it's like – like, like he goes back to the hangar and they have like a reception and everything. There's a seafood tower that probably costs like $500, like uh, sitting there, like uneaten. 
And uh, and of course, it, as Chris mentioned when I talked to him about this before, uh, of course, the the worst poor bastard is he finally gets back to his woman who has kind of been waiting for him, but really not. Yeah. Um, and she's well, gone on to, you know, marry somebody else and marry somebody else. And then and then, oh, yeah, I, I still have enough love for you to make out with yeah. you in the rain yeah. and and play with your emotions even further. <laughs> and um, and then, uh, oh, but this has got to be goodbye. This has got to be it. I mean, <laughs> on the one hand, I can't blame her because, you know, he's dead. Right. Uh, and yeah. how long? Do you mourn before you move on? It's been like what three True. years or more. Um, yeah, but you know, on the other hand, well, she sure got married and had a kid in a hurry, didn't she? Like, yeah. <laughs> she's got a kid. It's yeah. not just married to this guy. It's like she she just it took her like six months to grieve, and then all right, I better live my life now. Yeah. Um. My poor bastard. Uh. My the poor bastard that rounds out our poor bastard portion. Um, is uh the sloth victim in seven? Oh. I really do think this is the biggest poor bastard, one of the biggest poor bastards in history. Actually, um, he okay. Like when we know about him, they go to the, they go to the uh they go to his apartment, and there's like you know there's all that like evergreen uh air freshener stuff all over the place and all whatever. They go and they find him. They think he's dead. And then you have the cop going to him like he's tied up on the bed. He's emaciated and all this other stuff. And the guy's like, you got what you deserve. <laughs> and there's like all these people who are like really about sloth, aren't they? Like, like they really, really hate sloth. There's like a cop that hates sloth. And then it gets so and I'll get to another guy later. But like the the the. Okay, so the guy is definitely alive because he coughs. He coughs up. It's one of the scariest moments in a in a movie I've ever seen. Um, he coughs up, and they're like, "He's alive! He's alive! He's alive! He's alive!" And like, they, there's a and you know, you see all the pictures of him and everything, like the what John Doe took took pictures of. And at the beginning of it, I've always read his his facial expressions. But well, this is kind of like I like this. I'm lying on a bed. Everything's cool. I don't see how anything could go go, go bad about this. And then the pictures get progressively worse and worse as he becomes skeletal and all this other stuff. And, um, and so they talk to the doctor and they're like, do you think that we could uh, talk to him? He's like, he'd die of shock right now. If you shine, if I shined a light, light in his eyes. And he's like, he's like, um, uh, he's like, uh, he, um, even if he could talk, he bit off his tongue long time ago and all this other stuff. And it's like, and then he goes and he goes, uh, he goes, uh, he's, he's encountered as much suffering, give or take as I've ever seen. And he still has hell to look forward to. Oh. I'm like, Oh my God. Oh. Like, seriously, there, there's like two guys. I, I, I don't think I've ever encountered somebody on the street in my life, friends, uh, family who, hate sloth as much as the two key, two characters in like a matter of five minutes in that movie hate sloth and they're like you got what you deserved and oh by the way you got held to look forward to and everything it's the it's one of the worst i don't know it's one of the worst things i can imagine oh, happening man. to a human being uh q a uh what uh what uh good questions question question i got something to say i want the truth i'm listening all right, so we're going to start off with one that immediately intrigued, I think, all three of us, and that is, who's the better godfather between De Niro, um, Pacino, and uh, Brando? And I mm -hmm. think we all selected different ones, which should lead yeah. to great discussion, but Barrett, you were the first to choose, so do you want to 
start us off? Yeah, I picked De Niro, and mm. he's probably maybe the the least popular of of all three of them. Probably because he's got the the least amount of airtime. Uh, mm-hmm. But what he what he does is he shows the whole creation of how this empire uh, took hold and everything, and what it's based on is pretty good fundamental values of take care of each other, pay back your debts and favors. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, don't be a dick to people unless you're, <laughs> unless you're killing them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like he, his whole thing is not taking charity. He's regal. De Niro plays Vito Corleone as almost just like a, like a king, right? Like he's, mm-hmm. he's got this silent, this way of communicating, uh, without really, and, and intimidating without really having to, to do anything scary. And, I love uh, how like with the landlord, you know, quickly he decides, you know, I'm gonna kill that guy. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it it does feel that way, but he takes a lot of shit before he gets to that point. Like he loses his job, um, and he uh, and he constantly gets robbed by this like dude in the white hat and everything and and everything, and it takes him a while finally before he's like, you know what. I'm going to find where that guy lives and I'm going to <laughs> yeah, kill him. That's it. You right? know, it's, it's not like I'm going to shake him down and negotiate. Like I'm just, gonna, that's it. Yeah. yeah eliminate yeah, the problem. No, I, I think he's, I think he's, but it, it, yeah, he you're right. It does seem like it, it, it does seem like it's almost like overnight, at, uh, you know, when you watch it, but it's, it, it, it does, he does, he goes through a lot of like simple things. Just mean, as, you know, the, like maybe not quickly, but how determined, like oh, you know, yeah. poor guy taking all this shit. In his position, there's a reason no one's killed the white guy or the guy in the white hat yet because everyone's afraid of him. Mm-hmm. And it's it seems very easy for me, for De Niro to go, I just, I'll just be more evil than him and that's how I'll win. <laughs> and and I, I that's awesome because he just kind of flips a switch that, that very few people could. Yeah. yeah. Well, that scene, by the way, in Godfather 2 – where he he does track that guy all the way through the parade oh, and all the other so stuff good. is just amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. so good. Well, it, the, to to summarize, this is the Godfather that is the least amount of a dick. Like he is he is the the upstanding citizen that takes care of people and everything and does the least amount of dickish things unless it's to bad people. So that's my argument. Make an argument. Uh, and I think it should be stated that, that none of these is a bad choice, right? They're all great in these, <laughs> this, but at least the first two movies. Um, <clears throat> but I, I went with Pacino because I like the journey um, from not in the business to Godfather, right? He's the only mm-hmm. one we get to see take that full journey. We see De Niro do the start and then we see, you know, Brando at the end. Uh, but Pacino's the only one that we get the complete arc uh, from Dude to Godfather, and uh, I really mm. think that's the heart and soul of of the trilogy. Is you know, sort of his descent into the family business and it spiraling out of control in ways he can't, you know, keep a handle on. Um, but man, when he when he just mans up, I mean, first of all, he's he's only the Godfather because he was out of the business, basically, right? Because they mm-hmm. needed somebody like him to do the shooting and then jet off to Italy for a while. Uh, he doesn't do that. I don't know that he goes on to become the Godfather. That is the act that sets it all in motion. Um, 
Well, and it's also clearly something that his father never wanted for him. He's gone through all this, you know, gone to war. He's a hero. He's gone to college. He's going to be the legit person in the family. And, and to, to have to take that leap basically because of personal reasons, uh, is, is a devastating type of thing to his character. It's one thing that I've always just enjoyed about that whole movie is that he shouldn't be in this position. Right. Now he's in this position right. and everything. He takes it to, he's the one that's most morally corrupt, isn't he? Like Probably. He ends up being not only just, you know, backstabbing terrible people. Well, I guess they're all terrible people, but it's like, I mean, he, he just, he makes leaps, including what nobody else was willing to do, including shooting that police officer, even though he's a, a crooked cop. But like, he makes leaps that, People, even gangsters, are just like, man, really? You know? Yeah. So, um, well, and and the other thing about his, I mean, Godfather 2, he's clearly just, he's off his rocker right. uh, pretty much. Um, I don't, I'm not saying that, you know, in his position, he's not doing the right thing, but he, he seems a little bit more cold. He's, he's way colder than his dad is. Um, but by Godfather three, and this is what sort of like hurts the <laughs> Godfather three hurts the whole trilogy, but it hurts, uh, it hurts his character as well because he's trying to go legit right. in Godfather three and everything. And he's sort of decided that's the, he's, he's made mistakes with what he's done. He's killed his family basically. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so now it's time to go tour to a new route and he's got all these other old gangsters that want him to get in the drug drug business and everything but by that point he's not as interesting a character um but i i don't know if we i don't think we're ever going to count godfather three in this argument <laughs> no, so <that> so <laughs> I, I i just want to get a bring. i was just going to bring that up uh just to say that he does change completely but i i, I still look at one and two as the only legit movies in this group um Brando would be my pick. Uh, the, the here's the thing. Here's Brando is such an he's such an accomplished Godfather in that first mm. movie. There's so many things about him. There's no menace. You cannot you can't detect the menace behind what he's saying. There's never a point where he raises his yeah. voice or anything like that. And yet he's he's uh, ordering the hit on that dude's horse, putting the horse head in the guy's bed. Um, he's uh, he's doing all these things and he's he's so smart about like what's going on. Like, Hey, whoever doesn't show up to the meeting is the guy who's trying to kill us. And uh, you know, he's just so smart and wise and it's exactly like if I were to argue who's who's the best and all this other type of stuff, De Niro has to base his entire character on what Brando sure. does in the first sure. movie. Um, so, so you know, and of course, you can also, if you wanted to go delve deep into how Brando did that character, like, you know, he taped the script to places where they couldn't see it. And, and he was reading these lines off of a, off of a like piece of paper or something mm. like that. There's all these legendary stories about Brando, but you never like once sit there and think that guy's reading yeah, off a piece of know. paper. He's awful. You know, if that's really true, you know, that's uh, it's fantastic. But I just love that whole, I love that whole beginning part in the wedding. Yeah. And uh, all these people coming up to him, asking him for stuff. And there's the one guy who's like, he's very contrite. 
He's very like, you know, he's respectful and all this other stuff, but he's like, you never once talked to me in this past few years. Now you want something Mm -hmm. and everything. And this is on the day that he's supposed to give anybody anything. And he's, and he's even in that, and even in that case, he's just like, I can't, I can't grant this because you, you didn't trust me during this entire time and everything. And the pain that's on his face, like he, you could, you could say that he doesn't even give a shit one way or the other. If this guy comes and sees him or whatever, but now he's coming to see him and he's just, he's angry and he's upset. He's like truly upset about it. Like, you know, like why would you come now? You did, you know, you never did any, you never wanted to be with yeah. me. You never were a part of that. So that's what always, yeah. You know, that's what always brings me back to why, why Brando's really. Good that's what's that. so cool about Vito Corleone is he has like a sense of fairness. You know, yeah. Yeah. he has, he's a fair minded guy. Unlike Michael. Yeah, Michael's a hothead. Yeah, which is crazy (laughs) because he wasn't supposed to be the hothead. It was supposed to be Sonny. Yeah. Well, Sonny's definitely a hothead, and it cost him his life. And another character we've talked about today who's in hell. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, All right. Let's go on to the next one, I guess. Final question for this podcast is if Stanley Kubrick were still alive, um, which will grant is a pretty huge if, um, what project or type of project would you like to see him take on? Okay, Barrett, do you want to take it away? Yeah, I think uh, given the his history of being able to seep into different genres and kind of bring them together and Pixar's ability to bring different things all together, I would love to see him direct a Pixar movie. Wow. Ooh. Could you imagine? I like that. You just made me want to see his version of the opening 30 minutes of Wally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be perfect. And, you know, I mean, it, you can adapt the story to however – uh, his talents uh, lend them to, but I think that would just be tremendously exciting and would be completely groundbreaking. Wow, you're right. That's a yeah, great absolutely. Thing. And and he and and knowing him, he would have also found a way to to take the medium itself into a different stratosphere. Yeah, like Pixar is Pixar has already done that sort of on their own, but I feel like Kubrick himself would be like, well can we do something about this and that and whatever and make this a little bit cooler and all that? And you, you, you know, I feel like he would have improved just animation in general. Um, yeah, absolutely. Jeremy, what do you think? All right. Well, I'll, I'm going to cheat, but, um, and I'm going to say AI, um, (laughs) which is a movie he was sort of circling or working on, um, when he died and Spielberg came in and tried to see that vision through. And I'm also kind of on an Island in that I, I really like AI. Um, except for the extrapolated endings. Um, maybe it's just the aesthetic and Jude Law's performance, but uh, it never felt super kubrick to me. It always felt pretty Spielberg-y in terms of what I was looking at. Yeah. And I just would love to see the difference. I would love to see his true vision of what he was going to do with that story. Uh, Cause I think it's a pretty compelling story. Um, and with his, you know, signature visuals, um, you know, I think it it might have been a bigger mainstream hit. Maybe I don't know. That's my yeah. It's almost it's almost like um, the the Kubrick and Spielberg sort of meshing together was sort of a, a weird combination. Yeah. It, it becomes like uh, when you're watching when you're watching that movie, it's like there's a lot of elements of Spielberg here, but it's such a weird Spielberg movie. It's just not there's there's so much dourness in it as well. And he's trying to do a, he's, you know, he's trying to do Spielberg, like uplifting type of Spielberg stuff, but there's all this dour stuff too. It's combo. It's a weird combo. It is. It is. Um, so I was thinking about this and I was trying to 
see if there was any kind of pattern to what Kubrick was coming to the table with. Uh, you know, obviously, famously, after like that big streak of movies where he had 2001 and Clockwork Orange and The Shining and all these movies that came out in a row, he he took a long time on Full Metal Jacket. And uh, it's so long that like a lot of other Vietnam movies had come out before it, even though he was he was had it planned to come out before uh, like Platoon and stuff like that. Um, and then it took him another 12 years to do Eyes Wide Shut. Um, and, uh, I, there's not really any real pattern, but I do, I do feel like he focused a lot on what's real and what's not in a lot of his movies. And I would have liked to see sort of his take on this culture going on today, Mm. the reality TV, um, and the, uh, everybody's a celebrity for doing something stupid, uh, culture that's going on now you know, Kubrick doing something like that, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have the feel of like just some stupid reality TV movie or something like that. I wouldn't say that. Let's say I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't set his movie on the set of the Kardashians or something <laughs> like that. It would be, it would be sort of more of a veiled, uh, uh, you know, a veiled type of look at reality TV and what, what our culture is and everything and to have a character try to wander around in, in that space and try to figure out what's real and what's mm. not and everything uh, feels like something that uh, a topic that Kubrick might go yeah. through. Um, That's a cool uh, idea. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a, a thing in Woody Allen's uh, celebrity. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen celebrity. Um, but there's a, there's sort of a remark, uh, a a remark at the end of that where, uh, where somebody is like, um, what if everybody had, you know, what, what if everybody was famous or something like that? Like everybody has their own TV show or something like that. Um, and I feel like, and it also in to die for, there's another, uh, uh, sort of thing where they, they bring that up. Uh, it, it would be an interesting type of thing to uh, sort of uh, focus on, and we've already done like, you know, the Truman show and all that, but what if everybody was on TV? What if everybody was, um, you know, the trying to find an audience or they died, uh, that type mm. of thing. It would, it would very, I think it would very much feel like a Kubrick movie to do that kind of thing. Yeah. That sounds cool. Nice. I'd watch it. Yeah. Yep. I heard you guys just got back from DC. Oh, right? well shit. Yeah, we did. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. That was a whirlwind gone for two days like a week so we went out there and we shot five new episodes of our movie recipe show um and we did it over two days nice. and the, the, the way those are done um there's a lot of downtime for chris and i um so they're setting up cameras and they're filming in the kitchen and so chris and i would sit and read or look at our phones or what have you this is when i was reading the martian which is a fantastic book um and uh and then we would go film us talking about the movie and then we'd go sit for a little bit and then we'd go film us eating the food and then we'd go sit while they went to interview the chef. And so it was a whirlwind. We went lots of places, probably took 15 Ubers, um, four flights. But, you know, there was also that weird downtime that made the whole thing feel really long. But um, we have now uh, ready to be edited uh, episodes of Movie Recipes with Mike Isabella, um, who was on Top Chef twice and is all of these are award winning chefs and have. Most of them have been on Top Chef. Uh, George Pagonis, Jen Carroll, Dorn Peterson, and Victor Albisu. Um, and uh, they are all awesome. They were great 
they had fun with it. Um, I can't talk about what the movies they chose are or what the recipes are because we'll save that for the reveal. But I wanted to shout them out on the podcast. Thank them very much. Um, they took their own time and made lavish dishes for Chris and I to eat. Um, and uh, they were all really engaging and really into the concept and had fun with it. And so uh, in the coming weeks, look for new episodes of Movie Recipes. And uh, yeah, but we had a good trip. I had fun. And it's going to be a lot of uh, me uh, turning to the chef going, this is really good. This is amazing. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. It's so good. Oh, my well, see, God. <laughs> the way we do this is they make two dishes and they bring them out to Chris and I and talk with us while we're eating them and tasting them. Then they go back and plate a third dish for camera work and b-roll and whatnot but at that point it's either chris jeremy you want some more or we let the crew um sample and there were a couple of dishes that chris went back for seconds on i can tell you that much oh yeah (laughs) and he can't be blamed because everything we ate was amazing it was really good can't wait for you guys to see it oh yeah absolutely um but uh, anyway, that is the Sincast for this week. Uh, now, we are sending people to SoundCloud to comment. And uh, we uh, appreciate, by the way, after we did uh, Captain America Civil War, that uh, everybody kind of kept that, you know, to without, for lack of a better word, civil. Um, <laughs> they um, Even the people that hate our opinion were pretty civil there. Right. Um, yeah. Understanding that uh, that everybody has different opinions of things and we don't have to always agree on movies. And I swear to God that if I ran into some uh, to a lot of movie lovers on the street, we'd be like 98 percent in agreement with with most movies. But occasionally there's that two percent that we're not going to agree on. So, uh, but thank you for co- going to SoundCloud and, uh, and telling us how, that you think we're wrong, but we, that you respect our opinion. And that's, uh, that means a lot to us. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, just continue going to SoundCloud and telling us what you think. Uh, we are reading those and, uh, and, uh, that's uh, really fantastic. And, uh, so that will be the Sincast this week, uh, signing off. This is Chris Atkinson with Jeremy Scott and Barrett share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com. Barrett, while we were in D.C., um, I autocorrect made me text my wife uh, I can't wait to yank to you <laughs> instead of I can't wait to talk to you <laughs> tell me you didn't correct that right you just let that left that out there <laughs> I did man I thought it was the most glorious autocorrect ever I loved it I saw two movies this week and I, I was after Civil War I like I, I started wondering if I could like anything ever again <laughs> like like I was like I liked Deadpool I liked it a lot is there a way for me to like a movie because I watched Hardcore Henry and I hated it and Keanu wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be and uh, you know all this stuff and, and then Civil War was a disappointment and I'm like 90% Jesus Christ do I just hate everything now but I watched Sing Street and I watched Nice Guys, and both of those are great movies. Oh, awesome. excellent! Yeah, excellent. So I am, I am, I'm back on the board. Whew. I was worried about you there for a minute. Man. I was too. It's I been, fucking was too. Deadpool's the last movie I saw in the theater that I really loved. So I'm, I'm near the precipice myself, and you know, obviously everybody thinks this about me. Like, I saw the trailer for the new Star Trek, Star Trek Beyond, this morning that mm-hmm. came out last night, and. 
of course, the Enterprise blows up again in this movie. And it's, oh, of course. No. Um, and uh, somebody just recently tweeted, there he goes, winding up to hate everything again. And I'm like, I can't make a sarcastic observation without adding to the lore of me hating everything. I mean, come on. How many times are they going to blow up the Enterprise? I, the movie might be awesome, but I'm, I've been tired of that for about eight Star Trek movies. Yeah. yeah. And how many times are we going to see it this year where they come out with an even better trailer? Yeah. We made like, a mistake. <laughs> we made a mistake. Time. Yeah, we made a mistake with that first one. Now here's here's why you should love this movie instead of hating on it. Yeah, and ba- Batman's tra- second trailer was better. Batman v Superman and uh, the Ghostbusters second trailer was better. Yeah, and now this. Yeah, and and so far, uh, only with the sample size of B- Batman v Superman, that hasn't made the movie better. <laughs> we'll find uh, out. <laughs> I tried to watch Age of Ultron again last night just to to see if I. If this was a Marvel centric thing, or if there was one movie or that kind of thing, and I found it just like a patchwork of scenes, like like pages, it, almost like Batman v Superman, but a little bit more cohesive. But it was like, all right, we're gonna put in some shots of people looking longingly at each other. Now we're gonna put some scenery porn in there. Now we're gonna put well, some and I don't scenery think porn Marvel fans there. hold that movie too high in regard. I think they were largely disappointed with it. Um, but yeah, I've seen well, it again on like HBO last, or whatever. Yeah, the last thirty to forty-five minutes of that fucking movie is them saving the citizens of Sokovia, which is the entire basis for Batman or for the Civil War, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, the entire basis. It's the entire basis for Batman v Superman fucking... too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Age of Ultron is uh, one of those movies that you were talking about. Here, we'll put a scene here. We'll put a scene there. Blah blah blah. But the the battle at the end, I kept thinking, I was like, okay, so so here's an action scene. Here's what Thor's doing. Uh, Thor is with these two two oil robots, and then it's like, all right, he's he's fighting those guys. All right, let's cut to Hulk. Okay, Hulk is is also fighting one of these robots, uh, and then they go to uh, Iron Man or Captain America. Oh yeah, they're fighting robots too, and um, and 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 like none of it ever felt like. You know, like there was never anything where the individual superheroes were really needed there. There wasn't anything that they did that was special that was, you know, that it, nothing lent itself to their powers at all. Well, and and they're all punching fucking robots. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought it was, I mean, they're so, the oh, shots are it, so close up, right? Like I think yeah. I remarked at the time, it looked like a baseball card photo shoot. Right. Like it, more than an action scene. <laughs> there was my candy, my wife Candy, who knows very, very little about movies, walked in to the room, look, watched it for two seconds, and said, "That looks fake," and then walked out. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Like, and and uh, all right, two more things about this movie because it shouldn't be like a review of Age of Ultron that came out, you know, ninety years ago. <laughs> but like, they kill Ultron like four fucking times yeah. in that movie. Mm-hmm. At the end of the movie, they already kill him before. But then it's like, you know, they get together with all their respective like laser beams, shooting them down, and then walk the fuck away. I know some of this is in the sense, but anyway, it's just like, God damn. And then he's hobbled, and then he's you know running around in a fucking uh, a plane and shooting Quicksilver and everything. Then they kill him again, and then Vision kills him again. <laughs> yeah, he oh, keeps on okay. uh, he keeps on moving his consciousness to each one of these uh, different robots, and it's like you know. I, you just get bored with that type of thing. 
after a while. And how does he pass on his consciousness to different different robots when he's already been incapacitated through the net? Was he incapacitated through the net? I thought that he was thing- always in the net, and that was the reason why he was able to just keep uploading himself to these new bodies. No, I, I'm talking about at the uh, at the very end. Oh, the very like, end. Yeah, see, I, yeah, that that was something we did cover, I believe. Yeah, I think so because it was like the trio of them like beat him down, and then Scarlet Witch rips his heart out, and then Vision kills him again, and it's like, God. yeah. Damn it. Yeah. That's my, that was my main thing with Ultron was the action scenes. It was just the fact that, you know, is this, if you put, if you made this a Thor movie, Thor would be able to, to, to win. He, mm-hmm. he wouldn't need the Avengers in this situation. If you made it a Hulk movie, same thing. Um, it, there's no need to, to team up in this situation, but I felt like there was a need to team up in the, um, in the battle that was in Thor, the dark world, like that one seemed like more Avengersy <laughs> than anything. You know, I, I don't know. It just, it's like, you know, they have a schedule where it's like, okay, we need to come out with this movie, uh, this release date and everything. This is going to be the story. And, and we got to put all the Avengers in it somehow. But like, you know, as well, it's time to do the individual story. It's, it's, I mean, to me, it's like, well, the Avengers should have been here for this too. I don't know. We should yeah. use um, Winter Soldier now. Yeah. Yeah. We should do Winter Soldier. And then right after that, Iron Man 3. <laughs> let's go backwards. Let's, let's do Civil War and then go all the way to Iron Man. It'll get better as it goes along. 